Well, let's turn, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. We're going to see something today. We're going to kind of take a step back from our lives, and we're going to see the forest for the trees. We're going to see, like John Oxenham wrote, that God writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes, he said, and try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, up there, he says, with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right. His way was right. We'll be looking today at what you might call the the global mercy of the Grand Master, the global mercy of the Grand Master. And we'll see that no matter what you're going through uh, or will go through or your kids or your grandkids, if you're saved, God will make a way for you. He'll make a way through. He'll make a way to a greater good for you than you could ever imagine. You may have lost, you know, all your pieces on the chessboard of life. Maybe you're, down, you're just like just this lone pawn, or so it may feel. But one day, you're going to be a winner. Because, as Paul says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. That's a chapter before this, or three chapters before in Romans 8. We, those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior, in and through the worst that life can bring us, we will, looking back from heaven's gates, see that in him we overwhelmingly conquered. And we'll see it someday, thanks to the global Mercy of the Grand Master, as I've titled this message. Mercy that's both global and highly personal and deeply individual in each of our lives. It's in Romans 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, Paul writes, God has not rejected his own people, has he? That is the question, if you remember. It's the question that launched this whole section back in chapter 9, verse 1, where he asked basically the same question. What about God's own people? The question came up because of what Paul said at the end of Romans 8, just before this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11. What he said there, that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Neither death nor life, famous verse by which he means neither death nor anything that life can dish out. Neither death nor life, and then he goes on to spell it out, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if that's true, then the obvious question would be this. The question he asks in the very next verse, Romans 9.1, what about the Jews? They sure seem to be separated from the love of God. For the most part, they've been excluded from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just look at the Holocaust. Where was God in that? And to this day, the vast majority of them who are supposedly God's own people don't even know him. So how do you explain that? 
If the Jews are cut off from God, to whom belong the adoption, as we saw Paul went on to say at the beginning of Romans 9, and the glory and the covenants and the law and the promises of God's chosen people are now separated from him, upon whom he lavished all that and more. If he can't make a way for them, then what hope have we given all that we have to go through? What hope do we have that through it all, he is making a way to a greater good than we could ever imagine like he promised in Romans 8.28? Whatever you're going through, when you just can't see God in it, will it separate us from the sovereign love of God? That would be an open question if we couldn't answer the Jewish question. And so Paul devotes fully three chapters, if you remember, to that question in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And now in chapter 11, uh, we see the final answer to that question. God has not rejected his own people, has he? May it never be, Romans 11, 1, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying, I'm a Jew, and he found a way for me. Oy vey, what am I, duck soup? Let's start with me. Just look at Paul's life. He was a violent aggressor, as he said, and a persecutor of the church, as he called himself. Look at how God came through with him. That's his point. And so he's saying, even now, it's not like he's completely turned his back on us. And then in verse 2, he repeats himself. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him, Paul asks? He moves from one person to a group of people now that God's not rejected. God, the, the, God responds, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He moves from one person now to a remnant. Paul's point is that down through the centuries, God has preserved uh, for himself a small number of Israelites, of, of true believers, kind of like Jews for Jesus in our day. And so too at the present time, again, verse 5, there is a remnant, like there has been in every day, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That is, even the few, even the remnant didn't deserve it, but still in his mercy, he chose them and he found a way for them to come home. And then Paul, uh, and then Paul starts getting at God's strategy for the rest of mankind in verse, or the rest of the Jews in verse 7. The, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This is part of God's strategy. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes, he's talking, David's talking about the Jews here. And he's saying, let, let something happen to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs. 
David was asked God, asking God to, to do something here, and that is to harden the Jews that were not uh, truly his people, really to discipline those that were just cultural Jews, to discipline, you might say, the cultural Christians of his day so that something would happen to them. And discipline them he did by giving them up, by letting them go, by giving them over, over to their depravity, which was the first move of the grandmaster. And that is very simply this. He, he, he sidelined almost all of his chess pieces. His first move, unbelievably, you know, counterintuitively, was to harden the Jews. To give them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. You might call it a, a, a queen sacrifice because he gave up his queen, the nation of Israel. Just what is a queen sacrifice? Well, back when I was in high school, I finished my course requirements a, a year earlier, and so I spent a good part of my 12th grade year in all these extracurricular activities other than studying. <laughs> I played soccer, I ran cross country, I made a, a scoreboard for the Singapore American School uh, high, uh, as a class gift to the school, and I spent hours a day in, in the coach's office playing chess, or learning how to play it. That was back in 1972. That was the year, some of you may remember, when Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky went head-to-head -head for the world championship. It was like this, 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 this epic match between these intellectual gladiators, though one of them was an emotional kindergartner, if you've listened to the, seen the movie about, uh, about Bobby Fischer. And he, but he was my hero. Bobby Fischer, who was actually an egomaniac, but that's another story. But I, I was infatuated with this, this precocious, you know, genius, like many, like many these days have become infatuated with, uh, with Beth Harmon. I don't know if you know who she is. She, uh, uh, she was the, the heroine of the, next, the Netflix series Queen's Gambit, which is all about chess. She was a woman prodigy. I thought about Bobby Fischer long before that. All the time, bought books on him, uh, learned his moves, though hopefully not the egomaniac part. Um, I'll never forget the game he played at the age of 14 with one of the world's grand masters. Almost overnight, as a result of that one game, he was like catapulted into international stardom. It was one where early in the match, he sacrificed none other than the most powerful piece on the board, and that is his queen. And no one who was watching, not even world-class players that were watching, could fathom why. What's he doing with the most important piece? You know, what's God doing with my job? Why are you denying me a husband? Why are you allowing such pain in my life? No one could understand it until at the very end when he won a decisive victory and they all saw like the, the, the sheer a genius of his plan because it was a win that could not have happened without the queen's sacrifice. It was unbelievable, unimaginable.
Just like we'll see Paul says at the very end of this chapter, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Truly, he writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. Our view of things is microscopic, but here Paul gives us like this macroscopic view, a panoramic view of the forest for the trees, of, the, of, of a good part of redemptive history of which we are a part. You talk about Bobby Fisher. What we see here is the awesome mercy behind the equally awesome moves of this precocious genius who will do the most unorthodox things to make a way for us through it all. So take heart. How did he do it? Well, let's review verses 1 to 10. He began the match without a king. And then he sacrificed his queen. And then he let his opponent capture almost all of his other pieces, and he leaves himself with just this remnant of white pawns. Which moved the black pawns to his opponent's side, over to his side, as white pawns. The remnant of white pawns turned black pawns into white pawns as we're going to see, which means we are now, who were black pawns, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy through the global mercy of the Grand Master. All these black pawns turned into white pawns. While pawns who, white pawns who get this, ended up reviving the white queen. How so? Well, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That is, Israel isn't out for good, is she? What about the queen? May it never be. That is, God has not given up on her. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the white pawn, to the black pawns, to the Gentiles. That is, he won the Gentiles through the favor, through, through the failure of the queen. Because through their trespass, that is Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. How can this be? So as to make Israel jealous, that is to revive the queen. To win her back. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, for all the black ponds, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? That is, what will Israel's full inclusion mean? Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's saying, if sacrificing his queen had such an effect on us, what do you think bringing her back to life would do to us? 
Paul's saying that when Israel was like removed from the board, it brought spiritual life to us. And now he's saying that when the queen returns to the board, it's going to be, as he says, life from the dead for us. But we're already spiritually alive, so what could that mean? Life from the dead for the Gentiles. The only other thing it could mean is physical life from the dead. And the most likely thing it means is that in the last days, the revival of the Jews, the restoration of the queen of Israel will trigger the resurrection of the righteous when, as Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Israel's rejection brought about our redemption, and sometime, someday their redemption will bring about our glorification. To which you can only say, what a move. But there's more. In the next six verses of Romans 11, Paul continues on with this idea of what happened to us, to so many of the black pawns through the sacrifice of the white queen. But first he focuses on how we'd better have the right attitude toward his fallen queen because she's still royalty in his eyes and beloved. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them in the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is toward the queen, but if you are arrogant, remember this. It is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, his own queen, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Whoa. So do not be arrogant toward the branches, Paul is saying. He knew the tendency of all these upstart pawns, uh, their tendency would be to, to kick the queen while she's down. And indeed, that's what's happened again and again down through history. The persecution of the Jews by those who call themselves Christians. And so God inspired Paul here to put the world on notice in the verses we just read, verses 17 to 22, uh, where he says, essentially, you touch her and I'm going to take you down. You look down on her, I'm going to take you down. Because I'm not done with her. And he says it again in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches that were broken off, that is toward the Jews, otherwise you too will be cut off. Just like Germany was cut off from God after what they did to the Jews, God cut them off because of what they did. They were cut off from the branch from Christ and they're no longer a Christian nation. Overall, Paul's saying that our attitude toward the Jews, both individually and towards the Jewish nation, whether or not we become arrogant toward the branches that have been cut off, our attitude toward his queen will have a profound impact on our connection with him. 
Because God's main priority through all of human history has been driven by by, by this unstoppable, by this invincible passion to rescue his queen, his lost children, and especially the lost children of Israel. A passion that produced a plan that would be the envy of any grandmaster. So watch out your attitude towards Israel. Moving on now. Again, he started without a king. And then he sacrificed his queen. And then he let the opponent capture almost all of his other pieces. And he leaves himself with just this remnant of white pawns. And out of this remnant came the king, as we know, Jesus Christ who he then also sacrificed. And then because of that sacrifice, all sorts of black pawns became white pawns. White pawns who ended up, get this, reviving the queen. How so? All the white pawns are what Paul calls the fullness of the Gentiles will one day trigger the salvation of the Jews. You see this in verse 25. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, there it is, has come in. That is when all the Gentiles that can be saved are saved in the last days. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Then Paul says, all Israel will be saved. One day a whole generation will be saved. Uh, redeemed, and as a result, the whole generation of Gentiles will be resurrected and raptured. And both generations will revel in the genius of a plan that rejected the queen in order to restore the queen and to transfigure millions of black pawns. I want you to understand this mystery, the mystery of this unbelievable strategy. Moving on, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they were enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. I still love them. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, his global mercy, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to to all. All through this unstoppable, invincible passion through the global mercy of the Grand Master to which we can only say, as we sang earlier, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, who are all things so wondrously reigneth. 
Because in the mystery of his sovereignty and the mercy of his sovereignty, the disobedience of one is for the obedience of the other. The hardening of one is for the, the softening of the other. So that all his players, you and me included, can fan out into all the earth, engaging our neighbors as our fifth and climactic value says, the underserved among us and the nations, sharing the truth of the gospel with love in action. So as mercy can spread through us to all to further the global mystery of the Grand Master. For God has consigned all to disobedience, as Paul sums it up in the next verse, verse 32, that he may have mercy to all. You know, Bobby Fischer won international acclaim after winning that game. They couldn't stop singing the praises of this precocious genius. And neither should we stop singing God's praises. Paul sure couldn't. And so in the very next verse, verse 33, he concludes by like bursting out into spontaneous applause to this standing ovation. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. How mysterious his strategy. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's all driven by a passion to have mercy on all. If you're a parent, you can begin anyway to relate to the passion behind the Grand Master's plan. Because it's the Father's plan for his children. Julie and I sure can relate to this. Uh, years ago, 25 years ago or so, we were at Concourse D in the Atlanta airport for a vacation on Hilton Head Island with Julie's folks, Ed and Mary Olive Doubling. I mentioned this a while back, but I never told you the whole story. We got off the plane and went down the escalator to where the train was waiting at Concourse D to take us to the baggage claim area. And as soon as we got, on, uh, got there, the red lights above the doors of the train started to flash. And you know how you get into a panic? You got to get on the train, even though, you know, one's coming in three minutes. But we just jumped on and because uh, uh, it was about to leave. And we thought Jordan and Rachel were right beside us. Well, somehow they ended up behind us. And we jumped on, we turned around, and we see them right there in front of us, and the doors close, and, and, the, and the glass is between us and them, and off we go. <sighs> the others around saw what would happen. It's like this collective gasp went through, went through the crowd, all because Jordan was in second grade at the time, and Rachel was in kindergarten. Well, the train took us to concourse uh, from Concourse D to Concourse C, where we jumped off and we looked around and we saw this hallway paralleling the tracks going back, you know, to Concourse D. And without a word, Julie dropped our bags and she jumped, uh, dumped Cameron, who was still nursing, in my arms, and she took off running. <laughs> Call that Mother Bear. Well, I tried to calmly walk over, you know, to the emergency phone, and I picked it up, and I told them what had happened. 
And so the man told me to stay right there while he uh, did some check-in and that he would call me back, stay by the phone. Well, I waited and waited, and about 20 minutes later, Julie comes running back, and she says, Brian, they're gone. I can't find them anywhere. So I picked up the red phone again, and the man said, I, I can't see them anywhere on any of my monitors, which covered the whole airport. And so he said those dreaded words, you better call 911. Now, at a time like that, I don't have to tell you the kind of things that go through a parent's mind. I probably don't need to tell you, and I also don't need to tell you that you would do anything to get him back, which is just what we went on to do. It seemed to last forever, but as it turned out, a well-meaning couple, uh, uh, well couple got them on the next train. <laughs> And they took them way past Concourse C, B, A, past the terminal to the baggage claim area. They really should have just left them where they were and stayed with them, because, of course, that's where we'd come back to. But they were doing their best. And after what seemed like an eternity, we heard the words on the airport's public address system, would Brian and Julie Myers please pick up your children at the baggage claim area? <laughs> and once we got there, Julie... I'll never forget the look on her face. Took one look at them, and they took one look at her, and they were weeping in each other's arms, as was I. Now, you take the love of two parents, and you add that to the genius of a player like Bobby Fisher, and you multiply that, you know, by whatever factor you want to, and you will barely have begun to comprehend the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord for us and, for the, de and the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the, the global mercy of the grandmaster of Papa Bear, who will make a way through it all to a greater good than you could ever imagine. Nothing will stop him. Just as we saw in the lead up to this section in Romans 8:38 neither death nor life nor angels nor things present to come nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord Such is the greatness of his passion and the genius of his plan Right now, you might not see it, but that's okay, because it's still true. Because he writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. We catch but broken strokes and try to fathom all the mystery of withered hopes, of life, of death, the endless war, the useless strife. But there, with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right unfathomable and unsearchable though it may have seemed. And what all that means is this. It's what Spurgeon said, and I love this. He said, when you can't trace the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God. When you can't trace the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God because the global mercy of the grandmaster is at work for you individually. Paul's talking about Israel nationally in Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
But Paul means for us to take it very personally. We know he does because he bookends this three-chapter section personally. He prefaces it on a personal note, as we've already seen at the end of Romans 8, in the very last verses, that nothing shall separate us from his love individually. And then on the other side of this section, just after chapter 11, in the very next verse, in the very first verse of the very next chapter of Romans 12, 1, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He's urging us individually by the mercies of God, by these global mercies that I've been talking about in chapter 9, 10, and 11, I urge you to respond to them individually. Next week, we'll see the heart of what this means, according to Romans 12, 1, to respond individually. But for this week, taking our cue from the grand sweep of his mercy... Uh, through all of human history, what it can mean is this. is what it meant for my mother during the years of her widowhood. She used to play an old song on our record player again and again until all there was was virtually scratches. It's one that Dick Anthony and Bill Pierce of the Melody Four used to sing. And to this day, I can hear their voices. What it means for us individually is this. If we could see, uh, getting a global view, the forest for the trees, if we could see beyond today, as God does see, if all the clouds should roll away, the shadows flee, or present griefs we would not fret, each sorrow we would soon forget, for many joys are waiting yet for you and me. If we could see, if we could know, we often say, but God in love a veil doth throw across our way. And we get glimpses through that veil in chapters like Romans 11. But God in love a veil doth throw across our way. We cannot see what lies before, and so we cling to him the more. He leads us till this life is o'er. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. When you can't trace the hand of God, trust the heart of God. Trust the global mercy of the grand master whose love is uh, individual. Trust the one who writes in characters too grand for our short sight to understand. Trust the one whose way is right, as we've learned today, as we've seen today, with larger, clearer sight. Yes, uh, as the worship leaders come forward, trust and obey. And as you do through it all, just like Paul said we should do at the end of chapter 11, speaking of applying this individually, we can lift our voice in praise as he says, to God be the glory. Let's all stand together forever and ever. Amen.